So have you ever disappointed anyone? <laughs> have you ever let anyone down? How about yourself? Have you ever disappointed yourself? I have a litany of these stories that play over in my head, especially at 3 a.m. when I wake up and I can't sleep. And I review that whole litany of the times that I've let someone down in my mind. My son, Sam, was diagnosed as having oppositional defiance when he was just four or five years old. And when he was in second grade, he was enrolled in the school's anger management class where he was taught the process of nonviolent communication. So I don't know if any of you have ever taken a nonviolent communication course, but they teach you the steps of effective communication. And the first step is you make a neutral observation and summary of what you notice. Next, you identify your own emotions. Third, you identify what you need right now. And finally, you make a request. So I was deeply committed to helping Sam navigate his way through school and church and all the clubs and things that he was a part of. And I have to say that it was probably the hardest and most exhausting work I did in my life. One day, I woke up early, it was like five in the morning, and I had some time to myself. I went out to work in the garden, I had my coffee in my hand, and I had this feeling of space and relaxation. I just remember it so clearly. I finally had some time to myself. I could do some regenerative, regenerative practice away from the hectic life that I felt immersed in. I was still in my pajamas. I was enjoying the warmth of the rising sun and listening to the birds. And I felt quiet and peaceful. And then Sam woke up. He came outside and he said he wanted me to take him to the store to buy a new soccer ball. So I was very, you know, I let him know it was too early for the stores to be open and I needed some time to myself, but he, he would wait an hour or two. I'd get dressed and we could go to the store. But Sam persisted. He wanted to go to the store and he wanted to go to the store right now. And as these things happen in the world, this escalated from a discussion to an outright fight. And there are so many complex emotions that occur at a time like this. I was upset that my peaceful mood had been yucked. I felt attacked because I was not meeting his needs. I felt resentful that he wouldn't leave me alone, and so I lost it. And I reached out and I grabbed him by the hand, and I started pulling him to the car, and I yelled at him. And I said, fine, okay, we'll go to the store. Let's go to the store. Let's go to the mom store. Let's go to the mom store where you can trade me in and get a new mom, a better mom. And Sam stopped fighting me, and he looked at me, and that look on his face was horrible. And these tears were pouring down his cheeks, and he took some deep breaths, and he said, Mom, I see you are angry and upset. I'm scared when I see you like this, and really scared that you think I could have another mother. I need you to be my mom, 
And what I am asking is that you never say something like this again. I was dumbfounded. First, I couldn't believe <laughs> that my seven-year-old son was demonstrating healthy communication skills to his mother, who was standing on the front lawn in her pajamas and unbrushed hair, screaming at her child. <laughs> but more than that, I wondered, how could I have said such hurtful words? These are the words that echo such a deep fear of abandonment, a child's fear that his mother might leave him. And how could I expect him to control his temper when I was displaying such a loss of control? I was demoralized. How could I say I would create a safe world for my son and then be the person to threaten his most foundational relationship? And so I did promise him. I promised him I would not make that threat again. But you know, some things can't be unsaid. Last week, I called Sam, he's now 24 years old, and I asked him permission if I could tell this story. And I asked his recollection of the event. And what he said is that he remembers all the rest of his childhood having that underlying fear that I would leave him. So I'm telling you this story because I expect some of you can relate to moments like this. Hopefully, I'm not just the only person in the world who has these moments of shame and these are the times of that crisis of our own self-identity. We expect ourselves to have certain traits. We identify ourselves as being capable, strong, trustworthy, able. But then something happens and it disrupts our understanding of ourselves. This might be when our health changes or our bodies no longer function the same way they used to. This might be when weather comes and blows our house down or floods our community. Could be when people we love die or leave or change. We can find that we are not who we thought we were and we act in unexpected ways. We have to navigate our own identity when we act in ways that do not reflect our personal values. The crisis with Sam changed my self-identity. It forced me to see I was capable of behaviors I hadn't expected. This is part of life. This is part of the messiness of life as we learn to recalculate our expectations of ourselves and others all the time. How we navigate these disruptions, that is our religious work how we grieve, how we let go of a dream, how we do the hard work, this is our holy work. The Reverend Victoria Safford of the White Bear UU Church says this, how we let go of one idea or one assumption, one dream, and reorient our minds, our spirits, our plans around new revelations of reality, well, that is the religious life. That invitation to constantly recalculate change, disruption, these are the baseline, not the exception to the rule. Through all the windy turmoil, how can we stay fully present to ways of being? Grateful, humble, curious, awake. To ways of growing, wiser, deeper. Ways of loving, more bravely, more freely, more honestly, as if 
There was nothing to lose. So we're coming into this new church year with a sense of great expectation. I'm the new minister here, and you have so many dreams and hopes for how this congregation might change and grow with different leadership. And I expect so much of you as well. What is it we're hoping for from each other? I thought I'd start by reading you a job description <clears throat> written by the search team of a congregation nearby, not this search team's, as they looked for their ideal minister. They had eight points. One, after Sunday morning service, the minister talks to every congregant individually for five minutes. <laughs> Two, the minister works from 8 a.m. until 10 p.m. doing every task needed from keeping the building neat, making coffee, to preaching, to weeding the garden, and painting the handrails outside. They are 29 years old and have 40 years of experience. <laughs> the minister has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all their time with the shut-in and elderly folk. The minister never forgets a name, knows everyone's birthdays and anniversaries, spends most of their time meditating and in prayer. They smile all the time with a straight face because they have a sense of humor that keeps them seriously dedicated to their work. The minister makes 15 calls a day on church members, attends protest marches and rallies for social justice, and is never out of the office when someone calls. The minister preaches no longer than 15 minutes but in that time, thoroughly explains Unitarian Universalist theology and our understanding of God. That should have gotten the biggest laugh right there. <laughs> Obviously, this is a humorous attempt to show the unrealistic and often contradictory expe expectations we have for a minister. The reality is that each of you has a hope and a dream for what this church community can be. And along with that is an expectation of what your minister can or should do to make that an actuality. Some of you are longing for a minister who will create a community you can belong to, people who have the same values and beliefs so it is comfortable and fun to spend time over coffee, sharing meals, camping, or organizing events. Some of you are longing for a minister who will create a place where you might explore a more spiritual practice a place you can feel your soul awaken, your body relax, and some deeper awareness of life slowly emerging. Others are looking for a justice warrior who will galvanize us to action, who will anticipate a vision, articulate a vision of how to create fairness and responsibility in the world. And some of you may hope for an organized administrator who will be able to develop a sound financial foundation and create systems so we can function as a smooth, cohesive organization with goals and an action plan. I also come with high hopes. I'm hoping that together we can learn what it means to be a religious community. Most of us know how to socialize and how to have friends. But there's a difference when we come into community as a religious practice. I expect us to be on the path of learning how to become a beloved community. It means learning how to be with each other in ways that are different than how we are in the rest of the world, in our work, and the groups that we belong to. It involves covenant, which is the promise to work things out together, 
so we make sure we stay in right relationship with each other. It involves recognizing our spiritual nature, that deeper awareness that we are more than a body and more than a mind. And it involves the work of recognizing each of us has a spiritual aspect that connects us together in a way that I believe is divine. I also expect each of us to be engaged. I expect us to be committed to come to rallies and vigils and protests. I expect us to be active in the life of the community, to volunteer for communities, greet people at our door, and care for each other when a crisis emerges. What we expect of ourselves and of each other can be both a blessing and a curse. It can bring a sense of wonder as we move into doing things we dreamed of and join with others who have the same wonderful vision of creating a better world. And it can bring an element of disappointment as we fall a bit short of the, that perfection that we hoped for when we don't live up to our dreams when we realize we may not be able to do what we hoped to do. So it can create a crisis of identity when something disrupts our understanding of ourselves as a faith community. At the North Lake UU board retreat several weeks ago, we identified several broad questions to help the congregation determine what steps to take over the upcoming years. These questions were about what we wanted to look like feel like and sound like five years from now? And how do we go about building a beloved community? And they reflect the written vision statement to be a vibrant and welcoming community, feed the human spirit, lighting a beacon for love and justice. I love these questions and the vision statement. They're so aspirational. They explore that area, that whole wide open area of what if. They give us a sense of how we expect to be, an ideal that we can long for. And the mission is clear. In order to live into our vision, we must do the everyday work of worshiping together, serving others, and nurturing a diverse, loving community. Well, some of you may find these questions and the vision too broad, maybe too pie in the sky. These identify how we actually long to be. And if we don't have that vision, if we aren't clear on where we want to be, then we may miss the chance of ever getting there. In an active community like this, it's easy to get sidetracked and become busy for the wrong reasons. We can build community, forgetting to also work for justice. We can, for, build, we can work for justice, forgetting that we are a religious people. We can be spiritually connected, forgetting the diversity of religious groundings. It's also easy to become caught up in reactivity. And by that, yes, I am referring to our reactivity to current politicians. By responding viscerally and repeatedly to daily outrageous statements and tweets, we become robbed of our own agency. We react in ways that distract us from the real work we are doing, which is building a deeply loving community on Earth. Without a vision of where we want to be, we can get lost. I'm sure most of you by now have adapted to using some kind of navigating 
application when you travel, something like Waze or MapQuest. So I've moved to so many cities in the last three years that my GPS system is always on, just to help me know what city I'm in half the time. And I call her Siri. I don't actually have Siri, but giving Siri a name makes me feel like I've got someone sitting right next to me in the next to the driver's seat, helping me navigate the roads and the traffic. But all of you know, Siri doesn't know everything. You know, she gets it wrong a lot. Like, she prefers the highways. I don't want to go on the highways. I want to go on the back roads. And sometimes she turns, tells me to turn left, but I'm looking right ahead, and there's a median there, and there's a railing or a tree there, and I can't turn left, so I go right. I don't always obey Siri. And so whenever I go a different way, it kind of pisses Siri off. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? She gets silent and moody. And she won't talk to me for a while. I sense that she's a little disappointed with me. And so this is when I get lost. You know, I've strayed from where she was telling me to go. I don't know where I'm going. I'm a little confused. And after some time, she finally speaks. She says to me, recalculating. And I get back on track. She helps me figure out how to get to where I was going in the beginning. So it's a lesson. Few things go the way we expect. There are bumps in the road and there are wrong turns. But if we have a vision of where we want to be, we can navigate the disruptions. We can recalculate our journey and move towards that destination. We can expect to have crises in our life. We can expect the unexpected and the challenges to our own identity. We can anticipate this as individuals and as a church. To weather, to weather this, we must have a vision of who we want to be clearly before us. So when we're blowing off track, we can recalculate and move back towards the way we are going. What do you aspire to be? As a parent, as a child, as a co-worker, as a boss, as a retiree? What do we aspire to be as a religious community? Each of you as a spiritual person, a seeker of justice. As Unitarian Universalists, we have expectations of being a beloved community. So I'm gonna let you in on a secret. We don't really know how to get there. None of us do. There's no set path to follow, so we constantly have to recalculate and we have to adapt. And this can be both wonderful and it can be disappointing. But here's the thing about us. We're okay with that. Despite getting it wrong so often, we continue to be aspirational. We don't live up to who we, we don't live up to who we hope to be. And in the face of that, we still assert that we have not lost our value. We hold on to our principal belief that each and all of us have worth and dignity. And we don't stop. We just recalculate and get back to where we hope to be. I'm gonna end with a quote from the Reverend Teresa Soto who says, 
You are good. You are loved. You could use a little work. We are in this together. Blessed be.